0: Welcome to the American Academy of Dermatology's Dialogues in Dermatology podcast series. This podcast is certified for CME credit. For credit information, visit Dialogues in Dermatology at aad.org slash OLC. The information in this CME activity is for continuing education purposes only. It is not intended to establish a standard of care and is not meant to substitute for independent medical judgment of a health provider relative to the diagnostic, management, and treatment options of a specific patient's medical condition.
1: At the conclusion of this learning activity, listeners should be able to review the diagnostic criteria and some management options for high-risk cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, or CSCC, represents a growing proportion of keratinocyte carcinomas, with some studies indicating a one-to-one ratio with incidence of basal cell carcinoma, High-risk CSCC refers to tumors with greater likelihood of recurrence, metastasis, and death. Because these tumors are not included in national cancer registries in the United States, it is difficult to accurately quantify the percentage of cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas that fall into the high-risk category, though it may be close to 5%. Given the increasing incidence, it is important for clinicians to identify and appropriately manage these patients. In this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Samira Zarina Sai and Dr. Savinia Puglisi discuss diagnosis and management of high risk CSCC.
2: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Sylvina Puglisi, and I'm a Clinical Assistant Professor of Dermatology at Stanford. I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing one of my wonderful and esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sumaira Asi. Dr. Asi is a clinical professor of dermatology and director of Mohs and Dermatologic Surgery at Stanford. Today, we will be discussing management of high-risk squamous cell carcinoma.
0: Dr. Asi, thank you for being here today to share your expertise. Dr. Puglisi, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and for that kind introduction.
2: Wonderful. So, diving in, can you set the framework for our readers? Can you define high-risk women's cell carcinoma for us, and uh, perhaps tell us what percent of all of the
0: SECs that we see fall into this category? Sure. Um, As we all know, squamous cell carcinoma is the second most common non-melanoma skin cancer. And there's probably over a million tumors that we see. I think the way that we're thinking now about squamous cell carcinoma is really thinking of lesions more towards even maybe three categories, not just low risk and high risk, but maybe low risk high risk and some very high risk. And I'll define that a little bit. I think what's challenging for all of us to take care of these patients is finding that very small percentage of patients that may have a cancer that has the potential to have a bad outcome such as regional disease or even metastatic and distant disease or death essentially. And so because we see a high number of squamous cell, the ones that we worry about are a very low percentage. So in studies, it seems to be that it's about 5% of squamous cell carcinomas that are going to behave badly will have high risk sort of these features or may have regional disease or metastatic disease, and hence it's sort of trying to find that needle in the haystack with these small percentage of cancers. As far as low risk, what we want to think about low risk lesions are lesions that often are off the head and neck might, and are usually under two centimeters. When we look at these lesions, if they're well-defined, if they're primary lesions, meaning that they've not ever, this is not a recurrent, this is not a lesion that's been treated before. And ideally, of course, we're also looking at other factors when we are thinking and seeing these types of lesions that we're seeing a patient who's not immunosuppressed, that this uh, lesion is not on a site of prior uh, radiation therapy. We want to get some history from the patient that this is not a rapidly growing tumor. We want to think about whether this tumor is causing any symptoms in particular, if it's often squamous cell carcinomas are painful, but you want to sort of understand the extent of pain. And you want to even think about on the head and neck area, if the pain or any other symptoms that the patient might be having may be indicative of perinol spread, such as are they getting sort of sharp, shooting pains in a particular anatomic location? Do they have the sense of bugs crawling in that area or formication? So those types of things are helpful when you're seeing a large tumor. And so those are sort of the clinical and maybe patient features that we look at for a, or think about for a low-risk lesion. For a high-risk lesion, lesions that are getting over two centimeters on the trunk and extremities, if we're really looking at anything on the head and neck, feet, maybe the shin area and anogenital area of any size. And I think that really speaks to more about our ability to try to treat that lesion in a way that will allow for a good outcome, both functionally and aesthetically, and thinking about what type of tumor extirpation has to be done. So here Here, the size is smaller, but it's really about the location and the shins just simply being an area that is challenging for reconstruction and for wound healing. Again, going back to the tumor, if this is a poorly defined tumor, if it's a recurrent tumor, so almost all the opposites of the low risk would place this lesion, a lesion in a high risk category. So there has been radiation if it's rapidly growing, if there are neurological symptoms. And then I think for all of us, if we see a lesion that's, you know, over four, centimeters, I would probably clinically put it into the high risk category, almost regardless of the other tumor or other features from the patient's point of view as such as immunosuppression. And of course we can talk a little bit more as we think about staging on pathologic features, but this is kind of how I just think about it. If I'm seeing the patient and the lesion firsthand.
2: This is also helpful. And so much of what you mentioned, like you said, is what you're seeing with the patient clinically and also based on the history, which is really helpful to have an idea of what that pre-test or pre-biopsy probability might be of this being a higher risk squamous cell cancer. Can you just clarify for me what you would classify as a very high risk squamous cell cancer?
0: Yeah, I think a high risk, again, when we're looking at it clinically, we think of something larger than four centimeters, and this is the newest definition from the NCCN of what we consider high risk. But also, I think that's where some of the features that we look for on pathology are going to be very helpful for guiding us into thinking about how we're going to manage this patient. So if this lesion is poorly differentiated, if it has some of the histologic features that we know are bad players in squamous cell carcinoma, such as desmoplasia. If this lesion is more than six millimeters deep, if you're measuring it essentially like the way you measure Breslow depth, which is from the granular layer on an adjacent normal epidermis down to the very base of the tumor. If there's invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat, if you're seeing tumors within a nerve sheath and these nerves are lying in the dermis or deeper, which are often nerves essentially that are over 0.1 millimeters. And anytime I see a tumor pathology, that has lymphovascular involvement or LVI invasion. I think that is something that already puts me at high alert that this is a patient who could potentially have regional disease and poor outcome.
2: Perfect. That's really helpful. I know that we've discussed... Staging before and briefly touched on it, but it's always helpful to review and always helpful for me to review. So, can you tell us for listeners who do not commonly stage cutaneous squamous cell cancer? Can you discuss which staging systems you utilize and how and when you use them?
0: Yeah, I think, and just as a reminder for readers, we who deal with cancers know this. I think staging is really helpful to have a common language among all of us in various fields, especially once the patient may get into the area where the patient's being seen across disciplines. And so staging gives us an idea of where to sort of think of the patient, how they're going to do prognostically. It's also very helpful if we want to think about the management or the type of interventions we play, how that makes a difference upon staging. So staging is obviously critical in cancer management and cancer treatment. So there's been a significant evolution of staging of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And I won't go into the history, but I want our our listeners to be aware of two systems that are quite useful for dermatologists to be just thoughtful of as they're seeing these patients and even to start thinking and writing in their notes in the way that we do about melanoma. I think it becomes almost ingrained in us with training to think of melanoma staging, but we don't really think of it for squamous cell carcinoma. So the two staging systems that I want to mention are the American Joint Committee on Cancer or the AJCC-8 system. Again, as a reminder to our listeners, this is limited to squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. The AJCC, like all of their other cancer staging systems, is based on the TNM or tumor node metastasis categories. And the I think for the types of squamous cells that the general dermatologists or most of us are going to encounter, we really, the important delineation to remember are the tumor size. So for T1 is a tumor that's less than or equal to two centimeters, then it divides into two T2A, which is a tumor greater than two centimeters and less than and equal to four centimeters. And then T3 are the tumors that I really worry about. And the ones that I'm thinking about, okay, do I, should I be thinking about things like imaging? Should I think about how I want to treat this patient, how I want to follow this patient? And do I want to think about multidisciplinary care? And so the T3 tumors are tumors that are greater than four centimeters, or they have minor bone erosion or cortical bone erosion, or there's perineural invasion. Uh, This is tumor cells, again, uh, involving the nerves or in the nerve sheets of nerves that are deeper than the nerves in the dermis. And they tend to usually be over 0.1 millimeters or larger. So that kind of fits together. Or if these tumors have deep invasion, again, greater than six millimeter or invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat, because we know there are certain areas of the body where the epidermis and dermis to fat is less than six millimeters. And then finally, the ones that we probably aren't going to come across too often as dermatologists, but we may are the T4, which is essentially gross cortical bone erosion or bone marrow invasion. So that's the AJCCA system that recently came out. I think it's been almost two or three years now, at least. And that's very helpful for categorizing cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Another system that I think almost kind of also edged the AJCC system is the Brigham and Women's Hospital system, where the T part of the tumor is really based on tumor high risk factors. And those high risk factors, you'll see some common themes here are if the tumor is greater than or equal to two centimeters invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat poorly differentiated and uh, perineural invasion greater than 0.1 millimeters. So again, lots of common themes here. The one difference you can see is differentiation is mentioned in the Brigham and women's where it's not in AJCC. And so then you divide the tumor into the T1, T2A, T2B, T3 groups, and that is based on the high risk feature. So a T1 tumor has no high risk features. A T2A tumor will just have one high-risk feature. T2B will have two to three high-risk features. And T3 will have greater than or equal to four high-risk features. And so again, I think you know, just thinking of all these numbers and these sort of details that I threw out, what you want to think about is, am I seeing a lesion that's over two centimeters? Am I seeing a lesion that where I'm worried and I can see from just feeling it or having a sense clinically or from pathology, obviously, is this going beyond the subcutaneous fat? And then is my pathologist telling me about whether there is perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion, and then just sort of also keeping in mind, as we mentioned, the patient characteristics. Is this patient immunosuppressed? That's always going to put me a little bit on higher alert.
2: That's an incredibly helpful breakdown. um, And I love how you set that framework. And I think it's also so important that you highlighted that this is the language that we use to communicate with oncology and radiation oncology and all of our colleagues for multidisciplinary care. I think it's, it's so important that we focus on utilizing it. You mentioned a little bit about a few times, you know, immunosuppressed population. Can you tell me more about when a patient comes to see you for consultation, what are some features from their history that might make you concerned that this could be a higher risk lesion, not only based on the tumor characteristics or clinical,
0: but on the patient themselves, patient characteristics? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think when I look at the patient, I think as dermatologists, we're kind of tuned to seeing, just get a sense of this patient's sort of skin type and what their risk factor would be for developing skin cancer, the amount of sun damage, actinic damage that we're overall seeing. But within just getting to know that patient and finding out about their history, you know, it's important for me to know whether this patient is under any immunosuppression category. So we're seeing that more and more people are getting organ transplants. So organ transplant recipients, and then within the solid organ transplant recipients, I like to also break it down in my mind and say, okay, am I seeing a patient who's fair skin and has a heart transplant or a lung transplant? Because we know those solid organ transplant patients are tend to have much sort of high higher immunosuppression therapy, more aggressive immunosuppression therapy than possibly a liver transplant or possibly even a kidney transplant. I also want to think about those patients long term. Those are the people that I'm not going to be able to sort of modify or talk to their transplant physicians and trying to modify their immunosuppression. I think we have a little bit more leeway with our kidney and our liver transplant patients and thinking about how do we modify it should this patient start to develop high risk lesions. And then there are other things that we're also seeing much more commonly as our aging population lives longer. So you want to make sure that you're looking into things like whether this patient might have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, whether this patient has any type of lymphoma, or even I would say broadly, the myelodysplasia syndrome, you might see a patient with essential thrombocytopenia, and you know that there is something not quite right with the bone marrow. And these are patients that also, and I might come under the umbrella of immunosuppression. And then of course, with all of these patients, you have to think about the type. With therapies that are being given for these diseases, such as those immunosuppressive medications. And lastly, not as commonly, but just to keep in mind, we also see patients that might have certain genetic syndromes. So patients with xeroderma pigmentosum, we don't see this very commonly, but we learn to sort of remember this in our board examinations, the familiar eruptive KA syndromes. And if you're often someone who is seeing patients in a tertiary care setting, you're definitely will come across our patients with recessive dystrophic epidermal melysis bullosa, even junctional EB. And these patients can obviously have devastating squamous cell carcinomas. I finally, I think the other thing to think about is just, am I looking at a site where there's been previous radiation? You want to look carefully just in general for non-melanoma skin cancer, and then medication use that again, most of it often deals with immunosuppression medication use. And within that, I think about the drugs I really don't like, such as azathioprine. And it's interesting to see that as the immunosuppressive regimen has changed over time for our organ transplant recipients, we're actually seeing differences in their development of skin cancer which is great for our patients. That's a wonderful and very
2: comprehensive list. Thank you for that. I wanted to ask from the general dermatology perspective, let's say you see a patient in clinic and you're going to biopsy this lesion. Do you have any recommendation for what the initial biopsy of a lesion suspected to potentially be high risk should be? Do you find that, for example, partial biopsies ever hinder accurate diagnosis, kind of how we think about for melanoma? I would love your perspective on that.
0: I love that you asked me this, Dr. Puglisi. This is like a crusade of mine. You know, I think I trained with wonderful mentors that kind of just terrified, but educated me into really thinking when I take my instruments on how I'm going to biopsy a pigmented lesion. And I really want our next generation, the further generation of our dermatologists to really think about that when they are looking at a lesion that they think might be a squamous cell carcinomas, because I think in a way, when we think about melanoma, we think of our biopsy biopsy as a way to help stage the the patient. But we never think of it for the squamous cell carcinoma. We think of it as a diagnostic biopsy. But I think we're pretty good at diagnosing something that looks clinically like a non-melanoma skin cancer and possibly a squamous cell carcinoma. We really want to think about helping us manage this patient and stage this patient better. So I think if you're seeing a lesion, obviously that is greater than even a sonometer that you know is probably going to need further surgery, I would just encourage our listeners to not be afraid to really go for that lesion and take as much of the lesion as you can. If it feels like it is more than what you're looking at, it might be an epidermal lesion or a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. Really try to include the reticular dermis and the subcutus if possible because that is the pathology that's going to really help us. That sample is going to help you guide the patient into the proper treatment. And also to be fair to our pathologists, give them the type of tissue that's going to help them provide us with the details that we think are going to be important to us. So, you know, again, the, for lesions that you're seeing that are greater than two centimeters and that you're worried about, definitely try to get as much, if not all of the lesion, try to get to the fat and then encourage your, for First of all, make sure you're sending that pathology to someone who is a dermatopathologist or a pathologist, or even a dermatologist who's very experienced and skilled at interpreting cutaneous neoplasm. So think about where that biopsy is going and then, you know, kind of encourage your dermatopathologist or your pathologist, if they're not doing this already by peppering them with questions like, tell me a little bit about the differentiation, the depth was, did you notice uh, perineural invasion? Are there other histologic features? And you can put those questions in in that requisition and kind of force the pathologist's hands to answer that. But again, if you're not giving them a good amount of tissue, all of these questions or these details become moot and essentially.
2: That's very helpful advice. I think we've all had cases where the biopsy may be shown, you know, at least squamous cell cancer in situ, but clinically it was a much larger lesion. So it's very helpful to kind of have that go ahead to take these larger biopsies as for diagnostic purposes. So once you've seen the patient and you've obtained the biopsy and you've identified a high risk squamous cell carcinoma, what are your next steps for management?
0: Then I, again, I take the lesion, clinical features of the lesion and the pathologic features of the lesion and the location into account. I think one of the things that we are still sort of trying to figure out is when we should image this patient, you know, are we, and and trying not to image too much and increase healthcare costs unnecessarily, but also I think we tend to not think of imaging enough as dermatologists and we may under image and go straight, straight into treatment without thinking of imaging. So I think if I see a lesion, that feels more extensive. I'm worried that there may be some more soft tissue involvement that I'm sort of appreciating or sensing on physical exam. If any time a lesion's fixed, if it's whether it's on the bony skull or anywhere near the orbital rim, and I feel that the lesion, there might be some bony involvement that's a patient that I'm going to want to get imaging on. And then oftentimes I think of a large lesions in high risk locations near sort of lymph node basin. So for me, I think about large squamous cell carcinomas near the temple. And I'm worried about the parotid involvement, or of course, mucosal squamous cell carcinomas and lip that often uh, these are patients that might be seen both by dermatologists or head and neck surgery colleagues. These are high risk lesions. And so a large size there is going to sort of, Force me or want me to get some imaging done. And the way to think about imaging is really if you're concerned about bony involvement, then a CT scan with and without contrast, if the patient's renal function can handle it, is very helpful. If you're trying to, if you're worried about lymph node involvement, then again, CT is with and without contrast is is helpful. If it's more a soft tissue concern, then, or if the patient has clinical features or concerns for maybe perineural spread, then getting an MRI is usually helpful. And again, with any of these, be helpful to your radiologist, pick up the phone, or make sure you comment on what you're looking for, because some of these features can be difficult to find, particularly perineural spread, unless the radiologist is, is really adept and looks for these features.
2: And that's helpful. And I like how you uh, you know continually emphasize communicating with all of the different players in the patient care, like radiology and oncology. And then so after you have your imaging, what do you generally uh, recommend? Of course, it would be contingent on the results of that imaging. But um, can you talk a bit about some of the
0: treatment options? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the vast majority of lesions, as I mentioned at the beginning, and as you know, are our low risk lesions. And so I think if you're maybe seeing something that really doesn't look like an invasive SCC, that seems to be really on the surface, you know, I think in those situations or what you mentioned, a lot of times you might do a biopsy because it did not look that involved or deeper and you get squamous cell carcinoma, cannot rule out invasion as your pathology. But when you see this patient back and you're not seeing much clinically, I think in those situations even simple techniques like electrodesiccation and keratage would work really well another sort of shave excision etc so some of these destructive modalities but i do feel that once the lesion uh, gets beyond the dermis or of course if it's in a hair-bearing area i like to make sure that the tumors is extirpated and that the margins are, are looked at and so for our low-risk lesions uh, an excision with a four to six millimeter margin is usually sufficient and of course we want to think about where the lesions located and other features. And if the patient is immunosuppressed and is going to have a lifetime of many, many skin cancers, those I think anatomically pathologically size wise, and then sort of the patient characteristics might also make me think that this is a lesion that's more appropriate for most surgery.
2: Perfect. And can you comment on when you might consider radiation for these patients?
0: Yeah, I think for me, radiation is helpful when we're dealing with a patient who is just not a surgical candidate. Sometimes you have patients that just have had multiple skin cancers and you have a lesion that maybe have some high risk features on an area where there is a lot of other surrounding sun damage. So sometimes on the scalp, on elderly patients is, you know, I think about, okay, I'm thinking of radiation as an adjuvant measure, but I might clean up the surrounding disease. But for me, radiation is often used if the patient just cannot tolerate surgery. I think we've shown with various studies and and ways that most surgery and surgery done under local anesthesia is, is actually quite safe for patients. And even our elderly patients can handle this really well. there are situations where you may have be dealing with a tumor where the surgical resection may lead to significant cosmetic or functional uh, morbidity like exenteration or things like that in other areas. So, you know, there are times where then, for that patient, radiation plays a role. I think for me, again, I tend to use and think about radiation most often as an adjuvant to surgery when I see that there is disease that had quite a bit of microscopic spread. And even with uh, with good Mohs sections, I'm concerned that the tumor might be discontiguous and I'm not necessarily seeing the margins as well as I should if I see significant perineural disease. Now, these are not places that we have clear cut um, guidelines. But again, this is the kind of patient I wanna discuss with my radiation oncologist and, and sort of say, you know, I'm concerned about these, but we know that radiation has some serious side effects. And in certain places of the body, there's only a certain amount of radiation that the patient can really have over a lifetime. So is this the squamous cell carcinoma on the patient that I'm gonna really think about using radiation for? It's a really wonderful and and very pertinent point for a lot of our patients with many squamous cell cancer,
2: then a lifetime risk of developing more. So once you've treated this high-risk squamous cell carcinoma,
0: how do you think about follow-up for these patients? Yeah there's some guidelines from the NCCN again that are helpful for following high risk lesions. Um you know I don't know that I necessarily just follow strictly those. I also sort of think about it in the patient in general, right? So I think when we think about follow up we we want to think about both the high risk lesion itself that we're going to want to see the prognosis of and sort of watch its outcome, but also I think it's important to also keep in mind. So the NCCN does give guidelines on once a high risk squamous cell carcinoma has been treated, we should be really following it maybe every three to six months for two years, six to 12 months for three years, and then, you know, either six months or 12 months for life. But I think we should also just think more broadly about that patient. So usually a high-risk lesion, if it's been treated, let's say, surgically, and we're worried that it could have metastasis that we're not able to clinically determine or radiologically determine, we know that most of the time metastasis will occur often in the first year of diagnosis or up to maybe a year and a half to two years. So I think following that lesion every three to six months or really something along that category within that first two years is important because you will then hopefully be able to pick that up. You can also teach your patients what to look for in terms of regional or lymphatic disease and have them contact you right away. And that patient is still in a category where they're very treatable. And then beyond that, I think once you are thinking beyond the first two years, Usually that's a patient that is going to have other skin cancer. So I think even in that situation, no matter how much further along you're going to follow, I think that's a patient I want to set my eyes on at least every six months for life if they can handle coming in to see me. And obviously there's no barriers in terms of insurance and payers and things like that.
2: Dr. Assi, this has been so incredibly enlightening and helpful. Thank you for running us through definition of high-risk uh, squamous cell carcinoma, what to think about in terms of patient characteristics, clinical appearance and history, staging, how to best biopsy these lesions, and how to think about both treatment and follow-up. We're so appreciative of your time. Uh, thank you so much. Just last thing, is there anything that you wanted to add that we didn't get to talk about today?
0: No, I think being humble with these types of lesions is really important. I think, again, I cannot stress enough, and I'm so glad you brought up how to approach a biopsy and kind of both make yourself and your pathologist accountable for these features so we can treat our patients best and never hesitate to reach out to colleagues. Many of us might practice in settings where we don't have easy access to other colleagues that help us manage these patients. And as a most surgeon, I will say that your first shot at treating cancer is your best shot. So make it really a best shot. Thank you so much for that sage advice, Dr. Asi. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Dr. Asai alludes to the existence of not just low and high risk categories for CSCC, but a very high risk category as well. She considers tumors very high risk when they are greater than four centimeters, poorly differentiated, more than six millimeters deep involving nerves or desmoplastic. Baum et al. suggested classifying tumors based on risk of local recurrence and nodal metastasis. Low-risk tumors have an absolute risk of less than 5%, while high-risk tumors are more than 20%. They also include an intermediate category with risk from five to 20%. Factors to be considered in risk stratification generally include tumor size, tumor depth, perineural invasion, and differentiation. Tumor diameter has the highest association with poor outcome, which explains why it forms the basis of one of two major staging systems employed in the United States. The AJCC-8 uses the TNM system with tumor size determining the T category. T1 tumors are less than or equal to 2 centimeters, T2 are between 2 centimeters and 4 centimeters, and T3 are greater than or equal to 4 centimeters or have deep invasion, including perineural. The N and M categories denote presence of positive lymph nodes and metastases respectively. Of note, this system is only applicable to CSCC on the head and neck. Brigham and Women's Hospital or BWH staging system is also frequently used. The T stage is based on the number of risk factors present. Risk factors are diameter greater than or equal to two centimeters, perineural invasion, involving nerves of 0.1 millimeter caliber or higher, tumor invasion beyond the fat, or poor differentiation. T2A tumors have only one risk factor while T2B has 2 to 3 and T3 have greater than or equal to 4. Bone invasion results in upgrade to T3. Poorer outcomes are associated with AJCC8 stage T2 or higher and BWH stage T2B or higher. Neither of these systems incorporate patient characteristics, which Dr. Desai recommends when assessing a patient's overall risk stratification. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network, also known as NCCN, staging system, however, does include tumor location, immunosuppression, prior radiation, chronic inflammation at the tumor site, and neurologic symptoms as markers of high-risk lesions. Immunosuppression has been demonstrated to be an independent risk factor for local regional recurrence. Dr. Asai notes that special attention should be given to organ transplant patients with solid organ, particularly heart and lung transplants, who may not be easily able to modify their immunosuppressive regimen as a liver or kidney transplant patient. She also recommends considering whether the patient has any form of myelodysplasia, the lesion is recurrent, if the patient has any genetic syndromes predisposing them to CSCC, and whether the tumor is rapidly growing. Staging systems are important for patient prognosis, but also for communication with other teams who may be involved in the patient's care, including otolaryngology and oncology. Dr. Asai emphasizes that staging systems provide a common language with other healthcare providers. She also notes the importance of close communication with your dermatopathologists. She notes that biopsy for suspected CSCC should include the reticular dermis and fat, if possible for accurate pathologic staging. Dermatopathologists should be encouraged to report depth, perineural invasion, and differentiation for every CSCC. Dr. Asai cautions that as dermatologists, we may underutilize imaging in the initial staging of CSCC. Recommendations vary, but generally imaging should be considered in patients with AJCC-8T2 or higher, or BWH-T2B or higher, or in any patient with clinically palpable lymphadenopathy. For concern of bone involvement, such as a fixed lesion, or lymph node involvement, such as a positive clinical exam or high-risk location, Dr. Asai recommends CT with and without contrast. MRI is useful when perineural invasion is suspected. These patients may report paresthesias or formication. Guidelines for treatment are similar in the United States and Europe, with all advisory panels recommending surgical excision with negative margins, reexcision for positive margins when feasible, and radiation therapy for poor surgical candidates. Dr. Asai considers location, pathologic characteristics of the tumor, size, and other patient characteristics like immunosuppression when assessing for Mohs micrographic surgery, or MMS. Evidence suggests lower recurrence rates after MMS, and the American Academy of Dermatology recommends MMS as first-line treatment for high-risk cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Dr. Asai thinks about adjuvant radiation for patients with suspected discontinuous tumor or significant perineural disease, although no clear guidelines are available guiding the use of adjuvant radiation. Radiotherapy should only be considered in patients over 60 years, given the risk of secondary radiation induced malignancy. Utility of sentinel lymph node biopsy in CSCC is not fully elucidated. Sentinel lymph node biopsy may be considered in AJCC8T2 or higher and BWHT2B or higher tumors. A recent single center retrospective cohort study from Wu et al. found a high negative predictive value for sentinel lymph node biopsy in continuous squamous cell carcinoma approaching 100%. They also noted immunosuppression as a particularly important factor for local recurrence. However, it is still unclear if sentinel lymph node biopsy confers a mortality benefit. Options for advanced disease should be considered in conjunction with an oncologist and include traditional chemotherapy such as 5-fluorouracil, cisplatin, carboplatin, paclitaxel, EGFR inhibitors such as cetuximab, or PD-1 inhibitors such as pembrolizumab or pimerulizumab. Squamous cell carcinomas harbor approximately five times the mutations of lung cancer or melanoma, making development of targeted therapies more difficult. After treatment, patients should be followed at regular intervals. The NCCN recommends every three to 12 months in the first two years during the highest risk of occurrence or metastases, and then every six to 12 months for three years and annually for life. Dr. Asai's parting words are an important reminder. Your first shot at treating cancer is your best shot, so make it really your best shot. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.